Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Curiosities in Psychology. So after last week's episode on chronic pain, I thought it might be interesting to kind of discuss further the relationship between our brains and our bodies and how these can both affect each other so heavily. So last week when I was chatting to Lauren Cannell about her chronic pain, we discussed how for years she felt like she was in immense physical pain. And to an extent, she was. Because what happens during chronic pain is that sensitization occurs. And this means that we become hypersensitive to pain because over time our brains have learned or been conditioned to expect pain. So we can learn to perceive it even when there's little or no evidence that our bodies are physically in pain. So chronic pain develops because our brains start to become constantly on alert and are constantly trying to warn us that something is wrong, even when it might not be. So this creates a tricky kind of feedback loop because we're experiencing this long-lasting pain and that creates stress and anxiety because we want to know what's wrong. And so we just become more and more heightened because our bodies are sending signals to our brains and our brains are sending signals to our bodies and there's all these constant alerts and warning signs going off. So what do we do? Well, as Lauren discussed in the last podcast, there was a huge psychological component to her recovery. So she changed her whole mindset on the idea of pain and even stopped using the actual word pain to other people to describe what she was going through. She also used a bunch of other psychological techniques um, so that eventually as her mind began to relax, her body did too. And we know this as a basic fact that when we start to feel anxious in our minds, like having a lot of triggering thoughts, our bodies automatically tense up as well. So your shoulders might get tense, you might start to feel sweaty, um, your heart rate might start pumping more. All these different physiological symptoms start to appear. Often the way it works, kind of opposite to with chronic pain, is that by first relaxing our bodies, our minds will relax too. Because if our bodies are relaxed, a signal is sent to our brains saying that it's okay, the threat's gone, and you can just chill. And this is where breathing is such a powerful... And this is where breathing is so powerful. Even though it seems so basic, breathing focuses our thoughts and relaxes our bodies at the same time. So it's sort of the ultimate tool for relaxing both our bodies and our minds. But let's delve deeper into this whole brain-body connection. So it's been known for quite a while that our brains create maps of our bodies, which allow us to orient ourselves and our bodies in the world and gives us that sense of space around us. But our brains also extend these maps to encompass other objects and spaces around us too. So if you extend an arm out fully and swing it up and around and up and down, all the space around and up to your arm's length is space that is encompassed in our brain's body maps. So this is something that neuroscientists call peripersonal space. And so our body's ability to sense this space around us and our brain's ability to map out this space helps us to predict a possible interaction between our bodies and a nearby stimulus or the ability to sense when another stimulus is coming into our personal space. So when you're doing an activity such as playing a sport like tennis or if you're playing an instrument um, or if you're having an intimate moment with someone, whatever you like to do, that stimulus or that person becomes part of your body map. So basically whatever we're holding or whatever is in our spaces becomes an extension of our bodies. So as a further example, a person who is blind will often have a walking stick and they can make their way around using this because they feel like they can feel the ground because a walking stick feels like an extension of our bodies or of our arms because in our brains, this is technically what is happening. It's also interesting to note too that what we do physically also changes the body maps in our brains. So if you play an instrument such as piano or violin, the representation of your fingers in your brain is larger the longer you've been playing that instrument for. And so that's also because the sensors in our fingers become more sensitive the more you use them. So you're more aware of sensations in your hands or in your fingers. So one topic in which body maps are being discussed extensively is the topic of phantom limbs and phantom pain. 
So phantom pain and the kind of techniques used to get rid of phantom pain is something that is really quite fascinating and it demonstrates how powerful the connection between our minds and our bodies can be. So there's been a number of studies that have shown the interesting effects of phantom limbs and how our brains can kind of rewire our body maps in sometimes unusual ways. So one example is that often people who have lost a hand, for example, and they were touched on their cheek or on their face, they might experience the sensation that they're being touched on the hand that they lost. And so researchers think that this is because in the somatosensory cortex, which is the region of the brain that kind of processes sensory information, the hand area and the face area are right next to each other. So when the brain rewires its body map after losing a hand, these two areas kind of get entwined. So to talk about phantom pain, 90% of people who lose a limb, maybe it's part of their leg or their arm, will experience pain in the space where they no longer have a limb, hence the name phantom pain. So phantom limbs can be explained by these body maps that are created in the brain. So it's been shown that phantom limbs are less present in children who have lost a limb compared to adults. And this is because over years, our brain has been wired to know where that limb is in space at all times and the space around it. So as adults, our brains are still trying to comprehend that it's not there anymore. And it's really awful for people who suffer from it because it literally can't be treated physically. It has to be treated psychologically. So one of the techniques that is commonly used to treat phantom pain is something called mirror therapy. So this essentially works by tricking, kind of tricking the brain out of pain. So if you've lost your hand, for example, you can get something called a mirror box. So if you've got your right hand, you'll put that in front of the mirror and the left hand with the missing limb will be covered up the whole time. And so basically you can start to stretch um, and move around your right hand while looking at it in the mirror. And this can eventually trick your brain into thinking that your left hand or the missing hand is moving around too. And it sounds kind of strange and like it wouldn't work, but this is actually a super effective technique for people that have phantom pain. So moving on from phantom pain, another really interesting concept to discuss in relation to the mind and body connection is our out-of-body experiences. So these are experiences that people often seem to report if they've had a near-death experience or something similar, but there's actually a really interesting scientific reason for why these experiences occur. So there was a study done in 2000 on a couple of people who were actually originally being evaluated for uh, surgery for epilepsy. So they were testing something in the brain, but they found there was some really weird reactions when they stimulated a part of the brain called the angular gyrus. So this is a region towards the back of the brain, and when it was stimulated, the patient seemed to have these out-of-body experiences. So one woman reported she felt like she was literally on top of the roof looking down at herself and looking at the neurologist. But she also said she could only see the bottom half of her body. And the neurologist kind of questioned this and then realized that the way that she was sitting in the chair where they were testing her, um, she was sitting kind of upright. So she could literally only see her legs from that position or from her point of view. So they concluded that these experiences were the brain's way of trying to make sense of our body's place in space. So the angular gyrus seems to play a really important part in our self-representation or understanding of where our bodies are in space and how we perceive this through our minds. So it's pretty funky stuff, but it shows how important it is to have these neurological pathways mapped out in our brains so that we can understand our body's physical orientation in space. So there's a lot of really interesting findings when looking at the connection between our brains and our bodies but they all show how interconnected our minds and our bodies are. So our brains have a huge impact on our perception of our bodies, but the health of our actual bodies also hugely impacts our mental health. So we know like how with chronic pain or with any kind of physical pain, this can hugely impact our mental health too. And it goes both ways. So we know that if we're mentally unwell, 
our immune systems actually aren't as resilient as when we're mentally healthy. So we're more likely to get sick or get random illnesses we've never had before simply because our mental health was down, which can make our bodies react in a negative way. So looking after our mental health by making sure we take time to ourselves to do stress after a busy day or catching up with friends or whatever makes your mind happy also influences how resilient your body is. And keeping our bodies healthy, like eating good food, getting enough sleep, and just generally looking out for ourselves also looks after our mental health too. So thanks for listening to this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to see more, follow Curiosities in Psych on Insta, Facebook, or TikTok. And otherwise, have a great week and I'll see you next Friday.